Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, which can be found on page 1156 in your pew Bibles. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Last week I received an email from a former student of mine who had been in my class and also in our church in, in around 1995, 1996. This is a student that I hadn't thought of or wondered about um, probably not even once in over 20 years. And all of a sudden, in the way of email miracle, this email pops up on my screen. And it was one of those emails, I have to say, I, I felt like putting it in an attachment so I wouldn't lose it. Um, I read it over and over and over again. It actually came to me on my birthday, my 57th birthday. First thing in the morning on my birthday when I was sitting with my coffee, reflecting on the nature of birthday and was thinking about uh, Phil's message on Ephesians about the narrative of blessing versus the narrative of scarcity and trying to see how that word was a word for me on my birthday. And this email of gratitude pops up. What I did a little bit later in the day is I, I sent it to a friend um, who lives in the United States and who acts as a kind of a, not only a, a friend and um, but also a kind of a, a spiritual director from a distance and I said you know Tim I check this email out tell me tell me what you think and I was expecting that he would return with you know he's a historian an academic and an American so all those things mean that usually you get a long detailed um, Response, he just said, Dear Paul, this is really powerful and important. That's it. Dear Paul, this is really powerful and important. I have to say, I was, I was expecting something else, but he reminded me that powerful is something that I should be thinking about once in a while. And the Apostle Paul gets into that in this passage in Ephesians. The passage starts out by him talking about praying for the church at Ephesus. 
And he prays. This is one of those, uh, the reason we're slowing down in this book is because this is one of those books that points us to the rest of Scripture that says that anything that you're reading that's important, you ought to slow down and take it in. Digest it. Allow it to speak to your soul. And especially when it's Holy Scripture. And Paul says that he's praying for the opening of the church's heart of the people's heart. He's talking about opening our eyes, but really he's talking about opening our heart. And the heart for Jewish people is the way of understanding. It is the place where human beings meet God and have fellowship and friendship with God. It's the place of deep emotion. It's the place of true insight. It's the place of spiritual depth. It's the place of where who you are is constantly ground out in in relationship to who you are called to be and who you are coming. It is, um, to use Phil's terms in introducing us to Ephesians, it is the place of identity. And Paul wants the church at Ephesians to open the eyes of their heart. This is the place that's not accessible to logic. It's not the place of reason. It's not the place of research. It's not the place of observation and the scientific method. Eugene Peterson describes prayer this way. He says that prayer cultivates an intimacy with realities that are not accessible to our other senses. And so Paul's praying for the church to listen in a really deep and unique way. To listen with a full openness of what God has for them. This passage could remind us of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, with Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. And Luke tells us that they, it was Jesus himself. In other words, Jesus as they knew him to be. And yet they were kept from recognizing him. Something in their sadness, something in their despair, something in their own self-understanding, something in their own self-narrative around the disappointment of Jesus' death and the disappointment of his promised resurrection. And yet we're reminded mysteriously that their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. How to understand that? But that's the eyes of the heart. That's the level at which Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. And he prays for hope. He prays for that strong confidence in the goodness of the future, even when we may not have any kind of evidence in the goodness that is eventually coming. Now and in the age ahead. And he he points in his writing to to these these manifest gifts of our inheritance. What are those gifts of our inheritance? For Knox Church, we're going to say today that one of the gifts of our inheritance in Jesus Christ is the Knox Youth Dinner and Food Bank. That's what we're going to say together after the service as we celebrate. We're going to recognize together that we have been given this lavish, beautiful gift 
and calling of serving young people who are homeless and hungry in our city, and that the Holy Spirit has been empowering us and challenging us, particularly through Bill and Vicki over the years, to be a part of that. That's a, a wonderful, wonderful inheritance. But, but the thing that catches my mind and catches my eye today when I come to this passage is when Paul says that you may know him better and his incomparably great power. That's the, that's the line that jumps off the page to me in this text. His, that you may know his incomparably great power. Paul stresses that he uses three different words in the text to describe power. Words that are used for force, used, words that are used for strength, and words that are used that, to express the ability to achieve something. These aren't words that he just uses mindlessly. They were our words on purpose to come together to say, I'm really talking about power. I don't know how you read scripture, but one of the things that we have is the freedom to read scripture with some kind of honesty. When we come to a place that says, or an idea or a theme, where we just go, I just don't really get that. It doesn't really speak to me. I'm not sure where God is coming from or where Paul is coming from or where Jesus is coming from on that one. Don't you want to say, when the Apostle Paul is writing this to the church of Ephesus, don't you want to say, really, Paul? First of all, it's quite possible that Paul was in prison while he was writing this. So there's kind of a built-in irony when he's talking about this uncomparable power. I watch a program on PBS called Grandchester, and it's about the exploits of a young priest in the Anglican church in, set in an idyllic English village called Grandchester, and the priest is a young guy named Sidney, and he is more interested or as interested in police work as he is in pastoral work, seemingly. This past week's episode reminded me of a deficiency that I have in my own thinking, not only about scripture, but also about the church, because in most of the episodes, Sydney's sermons are moralistic, and the church is kind of pictured as sort of just fitting seamlessly into the rest of the culture, not just being kind of more of a social cultural club and a place to go and hear moralistic sermons. Until this past episode when Sydney was invited to practice what is a deep and long history of priestly ministry in the Christian church, and that is exorcism. I could hardly believe it that this little church in Grandchester was being asked to do something so important until I remembered that, of course, the church is a place of power. The people of the church are people who are called to experience that kind of power. And it reminded me of my preaching text that the Apostle Paul is praying again and again, over and over, trying to work it in to the understanding of the people that he's writing to. I want you to recognize that you have this power. My home church for many years was 40 people. 
it was a loving group of people. It was a truthful group of people. But I'm going to tell you, it was not a powerful group of people by anything that I could see. We weren't involved in the politics of development in our little village up in York region when the politics of development were raging in our town in those days. The church had nothing to say, no involvement, no members of our church were involved in the politics of the time. We were an isolated little group of people and you could have described us in all kinds of different ways that I would have said yes, 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 but not power. That was the furthest thing from our ethos as a community of Christians. And what do we hear about the church? What we hear about the church is sort of that it's the place and the community and the culture and the tradition of anti-power rapidly declining, increasingly irrelevant, finding itself existing on the periphery of culture, completely relegated to the sidelines of life and history. That's what we hear over and over and over again. And in many ways, that's the narrative that we have come to take on, the narrative that the church is irrelevant. And when Phil, it's fascinating to me that Phil asked the question, what are you doing here this morning? Because many of us come out of tradition, we come out of habit, and those traditions and those habits are good things if they place you in the center of God's purposes in the house of worship with the community of the church. That's what I believe. But power isn't really the first word on our list. The church instead seems to be intimidated and impressed with every other sphere of culture other than the church itself. We're looking to marketers, we're looking to business, we're looking to education, we're looking to political strategies, we're looking to technology, we're, we seem to be impressed with just about everything that the culture at large and the spheres of the culture offer us. And sometimes, truth be known, we've gotten so much in bed with those spheres and those techniques of the culture that we have actually lost our identity, or at least been in danger all truth is God's truth, and where there's good things to be adopted in the life of the church, of course, but, but the way that we often relate to the rest of the culture is as fearful and intimidated. Constantly tempted to beg, borrow, and steal from everybody else, and increasingly, in many places, increasingly intimidated and one left wondering whether we have anything unique to offer or to do. Let's slow down and are thinking a little bit, would you, with me. What is Paul doing here? What Paul's doing is he's coaching. He's mentoring. He's pastoring. He's teaching. He's parenting. He's doing what mentors and coaches and pastors and parents and spiritual directors and friends do with the people that they are responsible for shaping. What he's doing here with this little group of churches connected to Ephesus, even writing out of a position of weakness, is he's taking their lives more seriously than they take their own lives themselves. And that's what you do when you're shaping another person's life. 
You hope all things for them. Even when they're beyond, beyond hope, even when they don't have eyes to see what God is doing, even when they don't recognize their own gifting, even when they don't have recognize their own strength. The pastor and the parent and the prophet and the priest, the spiritual director and the teacher and the coach work on people's growth by helping them, by training them to prep, prep because they recognize that the challenge and the struggle and the journey is a deep and long one and a serious one and oh, too very real. When I was in high school, we thought we had a great basketball team. We had a good basketball team. But we were invited to go to the number one high school basketball tournament in Canada. Here, over the Christmas break, the famous York University tournament. And surprise, surprise, we were ranked 16th out of 16 teams in the tournament. And so we drew the number one team in the country, not the city, not the province, in Canada. And high school national rankings had just started to come out during my time in high school. Our coach seemed so excited to me, looking back, and shortly after, so excited that we somehow qualified for this elite tournament and put more energy into advertising and publicizing and marketing throughout York Region, where we were a powerhouse in a region not really known for basketball, to be honest. Spent more time on that, really, than he did on preparing us for the battle. And I am not going to tell you how wide the margin is. But you can go in the mid-70s and find the front page, not the sports page, the front page of the Globe and Mail, and see two of my teammates and good friends to this day one a businessman and one a physician standing with their hands looking up at the basket while three players from Oakwood Collegiate were up over the rim competing to stuff a ball down our throats. <laughs> Coaches have to prepare people. Pastors have to work preparation into the lives of people. And Paul is doing this. He is working God's truth into the life of the church at Ephesus. But here's what's interesting. If you read the passage closely, he never tells you what the power is for. He actually doesn't explain what the power is for. He describes the power, he names the power, and he makes a key association with Jesus and his resurrection. He says that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that you can know in your church and in your life. And I'm praying that you will come to know this power. Along with that hope, and along with the experience of your rich inheritance, as deep and wide as that is. 
Paul's coming at the beginning. He says, he says in the first couple of verses, he says that he's heard that there are people of faith. He's heard that they're people of love. He likes these people. He thinks they're on the road. He thinks there's some good things happening in their lives. He hasn't been with them for years. But he's heard good news, and yet he's not satisfied, seemingly, in his preparation and in his pastoring with them. He's not satisfied with that, because like, I would take faith and love. Like, I would probably, most days, be satisfied with faith and love in a community of people. But Paul is carefully and steadily building something in to the Christians at Ephesus. We've heard in the last couple of weeks that there is a kind of a dichotomy of story or a competing dramas taking place in the, book of in the book of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. Phil identified our identity, our core identity as saints. Saints means holy people. And all you have to do is just look at yourself and look around the room and go, nice people, great people, talented people, resourceful people, educated people, People reflecting all kinds of cultural richness, but holy, hmm. And yet that's what Paul calls us, because that's how God sees us in Jesus Christ. But that goes against the grain of our personal or sociological explanation of the church. Phil talked about last week this this competition between being blessed and the narrative of scarcity one that that I thought about a lot on my birthday in terms of what does it mean to really be blessed when the power of the narrative of scarcity just haunts us and, and infiltrates our language and sinks deep down into our souls and here's another one it's just this seeping sense that the church has nothing to say. No real meaningful world-shaping contribution. And yet Paul says, I want you to experience God's incomparable power. That's what I'm praying for. This is a word to the Ephesians. This is a word to us. And so what do you think when you hear one of the great voices in your Christian journey, the Apostle Paul, saying that he's praying for your power, that he's praying that you know resurrection power? And that's the showstopper in the passage for Paul. It's not the power of Caesar. It's not the power of Mediterranean economics. It's not cultural power. It's not education power. It's not cultural diversity power. It's the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. It's that kind of power. Paul, my goodness, Paul is messing again with our identity by claiming that we have the capacity to be powerful, to know the power of God that raised Jesus a few things as we reflect together. First of all, the language of power is actually not obscure in the scriptures. Listen with your ears and the ears of your heart. Acts 1, chapter 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of Samaria to the ends of the earth. 
Acts 10, 38, God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how beloved, how, how, sorry, how we tried among you for your sake. Romans 15 and 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no shyness in the New Testament amongst the apostles. There's no shyness in the book of Acts for talking about the power of God applied to human beings. But Paul doesn't tell us what it's for. It's like he's working slowly on our identity. It's like he's deconstructing us in order to narrate us again truthfully. From unholy people to saints, to people who were worried about not having enough everywhere we look and everything we think about, to people who are blessed with blessing after blessing, who are overflowing. People who are assume in the depths of their hearts they don't really have something unique, that they're mostly irrelevant, that their practices are obscure and outdated to a people who have a role in the experience and the exercise of God's power. How do you understand God's power in your life? How do you experience that power? What role does God's power have in your life? Is your understanding of the Christian life more about powerlessness or about power? That's, by the way, a very interesting question that goes to the core of the faith. When you take a look at the church, do you see examples of power? Do you see any signs of power? Do you see any exemplars of power in the lives of the people that you know? Who are the people in your Christian journey that you see as experiencing power, as living out the power of the Holy Spirit? What does power evangelism mean? What does power church mean? How do you understand the promise that God's power is perfected in weakness? third thing is this. If we're to exercise power, the counsel of the Word of God for us is that that power has got to be shaped in the Jesus way and with a Jesus-shaped focus. Power to see what's really true insight. Power to value what's good Power to choose, power to change, power to commit yourself to the kingdom of good in every single situation in its struggle with the kingdom of evil. Power to heal, power to feed, power to set people free from control of the demonic, power to set prisoners free. 
Power like the struggle that Paul talked about to make disciples. Power to live as witnesses. Power because of the openness of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Power of humility, the power of nonviolence, the power of sacrifice. These are the things that shape our way of thinking about power. But we're taking our time in the book of Ephesians. We're not going to run ahead. We're going to take our time and go deep and just allow those lines. He chose us. Forgiveness. Saints. Blessed. Blessing after blessing. The incomparable power. We're going to allow those lines to go deep as we I'll open ourselves to how Paul is coaching us, how he's pastoring us, how he is working the gospel truth into our lives and into our hearts. And as we go, we recognize that there are competing narratives. There is a dramatic confrontation and struggle that is taking place. It is important to get on the right side of the story or to live deeply in the truthfulness. But where is Paul taking us? In the meantime, as you open yourself to the Holy Spirit and to God's word, as we as a community travel through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, let me leave you with two stories. This is often how we learn. My friend Louise grew up in South Africa. She was and is a very talented and well-educated South African woman who played an international sport at the highest level. She grew up in a affluent, middle-class, professional, white family and community in South Africa. She thought, as she tells the story, that she lived the perfect life the most idyllic life. And then everything fell apart one Christmas when her oldest brother, the first in their family of the siblings to go to university, came back. And at university, he had learned the lie of South Africa. He was exposed for the very, very first time to the lie of racial segregation and to the dominant practice of apartheid. And he became aware that communities like the one that he had been raised in and churches like the one that he had been raised in and families like the one he had been raised in had actually been working and living in ways that empowered the dark side of that family. And Louise tells the story of how he came home at Christmas and he said to his parents, in front of all of her younger siblings, including Louise, who had never heard this in her life before. You have taught us a lie. You have raised us on a lie. You have told us that we live a beautiful and blessed life. You have told us that we are God's chosen people. You have told us all of these things about who we are, and none of them are true. That's not the story of our country. 
That's not the real story about South Africa. You've told us a story that puts people down, that steals from people, that denies people their true identity and their dignity to work and to vote and to practice. You've told us a lie. And then Louise tells a story about how, as a 14-year-old, her life began to change. And she started to filter everything in her life, her family and her faith in Jesus Christ and the politics of South Africa through this struggle between these two stories. The other story is for your confidence going forward. Even as we live in the struggle of these two stories, and it, interestingly enough, comes from South Africa as well. I don't know why that theme today. The story comes out of the ministry and life of Archbishop Desmond Tutu when he was speaking at a great gathering during the political struggle against apartheid. And the story is told that in the middle of his talk in that great cathedral, he called out the members of the secret police of the South African government who were hiding and trying to infiltrate the movement in the room. And this is what he said. We know you are here. We can see you. And we want you to know that you have no power over us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, receive the power today. Amen.